Well, good morning to you all. Hope you had a Merry Christmas yesterday. And although Christmas was only one day ago, I'm not going to give a second Christmas message. Covered that last Sunday. But as for now, before we return to Matthew's Gospel, I wanted to give you a special standalone message on truth. We live in an age where truth has fallen on hard times. Truth used to be a most precious commodity. People searched for it. Societies were built on it. But today, very few seem to care about the truth. Or at least they don't seem to care about absolute truth. Truth has become personal and subjective. People speak of you know, my truth or what seems true to me. Of course, this goes against the very definition of truth, but even definitions are subject to change in a post-truth society. However, the abandonment of truth has wreaked havoc on our society and stifled many churches as well. It wasn't always this way. In the early 1600s, a group of Puritans departed from England to form a new set of colonies in New England. And in 1630, John Winthrop led one group to form the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And their goal was to create a pure community of Christians to give an example to the rest of the world as to how to live. They were to be a, a city on the hill. And these men knew that one thing was necessary for them to achieve their goal long term, and that was education. So just six years later, after they founded their society, they formed what, the very, what would become the very first college in America, and that was Harvard College. Harvard was named after a young Puritan minister named John Harvard. And the original goal of Harvard College was to train Christian ministers. And in accordance with that vision, Harvard published its rules and precepts in 1646. I want you to listen. This is the original vision of Harvard, as we know it today. It says this, quote, Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well that the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ as the only foundation of truth, the truth of God and his word. And as Christians today in America, we're, we're very much the spiritual descendants of, of these Puritans. And we likewise want our lives, our ministries, our churches to be founded on truth, the truth of God and his word. There have always been individuals throughout history who have denied God and denied his truth. And think of Pontius Pilate. Remember when Jesus was on trial before Pilate? Pilate questioned him. He said, John eighteen thirty seven. he said, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. But Pilate said to him, What is truth? What is truth? And there, that's it. That's the 21st century man in, in ancient form. What is truth? I mean, here Pilate was being confronted with the, the authoritative declaration of truth. No truth has to be defined. Truth needs an anchor point, and you may not be able to define postmodernism, but it is all around you. Premodernism started really at the beginning of history and, and went up until about the 1650s. And people living in this time believed that absolute truth existed, and the only authoritative source of truth was from above. And whether you believed in one God or many, pre-moderns all essentially believed that truth came from above. They came the era of modernism from the 1650s to about the 1950s. And this era started with the so-called enlightenment. People still believed in absolute truth, but that the source of that truth 
changed. No longer was absolute truth exclusively sought from above, but also from below. That truth is not just in God's revelation, but in in the human mind, intellect, reason, philosophy, so forth. This era seemingly ended with the disillusionment experienced after World War II. And then came the postmodern era, starting really in the 1950s, lasting through today, the era we're, we're still in. And because this is the, the age we live in, I want to tell you a little bit about it, help you discern the times. Let me just quickly, again, by way of introduction, give you four characteristics of postmodernism. What's it all about? First, a denial of absolute truth. To the postmodern, there's no absolute truth. There's no universal standard of truth. I mean, who determines what's true or not? The answer is no one and everyone. No one has the right to determine what truth is. Therefore, everyone is really free to determine what is true on their own. All truth then is relative. It's, it's subjective. It's what you make of it. This is the foundational mark of postmodernism. To the postmodern, anyone who thinks they've arrived at absolute truth is deluded at best, dangerous at worst. The quest for truth is a holy grail that, that never existed, so let's just abandon it altogether. Ironically, of course, the only thing postmoderns assert absolutely is that there is no absolute truth, which is a contradiction, contradiction in their own terms, but don't, expl- uh, don't expect this worldview to be rational. Where does the denial of absolute truth lead? Well, a second mark would be moral relativism. Moral relativism. If there's no universal standard of truth, then that means that there's no universal standard of right and wrong, of morals. This is moral relativism. Right and wrong becomes subjective. It's whatever you make of it. If something is right to you, then it's right. If something is wrong to you, then it's wrong. No one has the right to tell you otherwise. And say you walked into a Planned Parenthood and you tell the staff that abortion is wrong, they need to stop what they're doing. They res- respond back, but you know, it, it may be wrong to you, but it, it's not wrong to me. How do you respond? To what standard of right and wrong would you appeal? The Bible, society, yourself. What if they rejected all those standards? And this is precisely what postmodernism does. And now that our society at large has embraced this type of thinking, well, That's how you wind up in a nation with no-holds-barred abortion clinics. That's how you get there. Because, you know, our society says, who are we to judge? This leads to the third mark, which is extreme tolerance. Extreme tolerance. Since there is no absolute truth and no absolute morals, people are free to essentially do whatever they want. Yeah, sure, murder and theft are still illegal. But the, that's only because that serves what people value most, the self. As soon as it becomes convenient or self-serving, you can bet murder and theft would be legal. Isn't that what abortion is? Isn't that what forced wealth redistribution is? Also, marriage has been held in honor among all throughout world history. But now adultery, homosexuality, they're just as virtuous. Who's to say two men can't get married and live together if they want to? Or three or four. Who are we to tell them they're wrong? When you jettison absolute truth, you, you have no ground to stand on to tell anyone they're wrong about anything. 
And so all must be tolerated. Now, of course, again, the irony is that while this society has tolerance for all people, all beliefs, all practices, they reserve complete intolerance for those whom they deem intolerant, meaning those crazy people who still believe in absolute truth from above. But where does this all lead? Fourth, self-gratification. Self-gratification. At the end of the day, when, when truth has been abandoned, meaning is lost, the only question then left in life is, you know, what feels good to me? What do I want to do? When truth doesn't matter anymore, the only thing that's left is self-gratification. And this is why the focus of postmodernism is almost exclusively on the self. Existence is about the self. Life is about self, the pursuit of pleasure. Do whatever you want, so long as it makes you feel good. That's your truth. No one can tell you otherwise. This is postmodernism in a nutshell. It's a denial of absolute truth that leads to moral relativism, extreme tolerance, and self-gratification. Now, you tell me, does that kind of sound like the world we live in? Sounds exactly like the world we live in. And for several decades, this thinking, this worldview has been just seeping in all the cracks of our culture. And I'll give you just a, a prominent example. Just think of the most popular TV show of the 90s when this thought was really emerging and blossoming, Seinfeld. You know, as clever as that show may be at times, you're watching pure postmodernism in action. What's the show about? Here's the official tagline of the show back in the 90s. It says, quote, what's the show about? Isolated, narcissistic, urban, 30-something singles float through their existence trying to make sense out of what they ultimately perceive to be a meaningless patchwork world, end quote. And they make it funny, but that's pretty much all it is. It's a meaningless show about people trying to make the best of their meaningless lives. It is, after all, a show about nothing. But I have to say, the implications of this worldview have have massively accelerated in the past 10 years. This line of thinking has a clear trajectory toward complete subjectivity in truth and morals, and we're, we're pretty much there. This is what has led to the wholesale acceptance of homosexual marriage in the past decade. Not even the past decade, even uh, shorter. And now we have transgenderism, which really is the ultimate denial of reality. You're taking something as objective and embedded as gender and turning it into a, a subjective construct that can be redefined. I mean, a long time ago, the world cast down theology as a source of truth, Now they're even casting down biology and and their old God, science. And now the sole source of truth and morals is self. So do you think this is a good thing? Do you think this worldview is good for society? As Christians, we have to answer no. We don't see any progress here. Only progress in, in the wrong direction. The only thing progressing is man's sin and flight away from God. He's only furthering his rebellion against his creator. Now, hopefully you can already see that the beliefs, the values, and the characteristics of this worldview just fly completely contrary to the scriptures. I mean, the tenets of postmodernism are antithetical to the faith. The foundation of biblical Christianity is an eternal creator God who makes absolute universal truth claims. So it's kind of the opposite to deny truth is to deny Christianity altogether. You certainly can't have them both. I mean, can you just imagine what would happen if 
if this type of thinking, postmodern thinking, entered the church. But I have some bad news for you. It, it already has. Now, you may not be able to always identify this, but again, I can guarantee you've seen it. Postmodernism entered the church back in the 90s and 2000s, something called the emerging church movement. That movement has pretty much died, but the, the, the principles behind it have carried on. They still characterize countless churches. Now, of course, uh, postmodernism in the church does not look like an outright denial of absolute truth. They don't deny the existence of truth, but they deny the knowability of truth, the certainty of truth. In other words, they may assert that truth may exist, but they also assert it can't really be known with any certainty. You know, we, the church, we may have the truth, but we may not. It's kind of fuzzy. Who really knows? Who can really say? And, and you know, certainty is overrated anyway. It's more about experience. And so an aura of uncertainty pervades the church, and that has massive implications. I mean, for one, it really spends the end, or spells the end, rather, of doctrine. I mean, who needs doctrine? Look, just about every view in Scripture has, has a, or every passage has like a million views anyway. So who, who can really say they know what the Bible actually means? And, and why bother? So, so don't bother asking these churches for a doctrinal statement that they don't have one. They don't, they don't need one. They'll affirm the bare bones. Jesus died on the cross to save you. But save you how? Save you from what? Save you what for? Unclear. Just, just love Jesus. But wait, what does the Bible say about this one really specific issue? It doesn't, doesn't really matter. We don't know. Just, just love Jesus. Just love Jesus. You see, what happens in these churches of, a, of uncertainty is that the Bible is rejected as a source of propositional truth and instead just re- is reduced down to a story. And that, by the way, is the cardinal buzzword of postmodern churches, story. It's all about story. You don't need truth. You need narrative. The Bible is God's story. You have a story too. Your story is, is just as important. And we all have a story, which is pretty much synonymous with saying we all have our truth. And you can't argue with a person's story, can you? This radical uncertainty in the church has other implications. Since the church doesn't have a corner on the truth, that opens the door to others who might have it. I mean, we, the church, we might have the truth, but we might not. Or others might have something to contribute, so we should hear them out. And this leads to the second cardinal buzzword of these churches, which is dialogue. It's all about a dialogue. You're not going to find true sermons or bold declarations from their pulpits. I mean, they replaced their pulpits with bar stools a long time ago. But it's all about dialogue. Maybe this other person has the truth. Maybe at least I can be helped by their truth. So let's hear them out. Naturally, this leads to ecumenism. I mean, why stop with fellow Christians? Maybe there's truth to be learned from other religions. I mean, after all, who who are we to say we're right and they're wrong? So we should hear them out. So you might see churches invite Muslims or Hindus or even atheists to to the dialogue table, see what we can learn from them. Another implication of the church losing certainty is the church losing conviction. I mean, old lines in the sand have been erased about right and wrong. Who knows? And since we can't really be sure what the Bible means, 
no hills seem worth dying on anymore. The church is not making any firm stands on doctrine. And by the same token, they're not going to make any firm stands on morality. And so naturally, this leads to massive compromise. You've already witnessed this with the acceptance of the LGBT agenda in such churches. I mean, who is to say homosexuality is wrong? And that truth was just relative to the time and culture of the Bible. But can, can we really still say that with any certainty? But look, when a ship has no anchor, it's just going to float and move with the tides. And so the postmodern church, they're just going to go wherever the culture takes them. They're just going to conform to the culture. But finally, postmodernism in the church changes the focus of church itself. With, with all this uncertainty, the little desire is left to study the Bible, to know the Bible. And, and really, why bother? Who needs to define and defend the faith? We don't come to church to study the Bible, to know God. We come to church to experience God. And the focus shifts to trying to commune with the divine, which is not a function of truth, but feeling. And this is why, as it said, that the smells and bells have returned to these churches. Worship features sights and sounds designed to create an encounter with the divine. And music is by far the main attraction because I mean, truth has been supplanted by experience. And nothing can translate you into God's presence like music. Really, though, as much as these churches might claim to be all about worship, the focus is not on God. It's on you. I mean, it's all about you. It's all meant to give you a personal experience. And church is intentionally designed with you in mind, not God. Where does this all lead? Well, postmodernism in the church leads to the same place as postmodernism in the culture, which is ultimately despair. When you chase experience without substance, it's only going to last for so long. It's kind of like cotton candy, and afterward it leaves you a little sick and still empty. It's all rather meaningless. It's not surprising then that the end of postmodernism is just nihilism. Life is meaningless. So what's, what's the point of it all? It's like we're all stuck in an episode of Seinfeld. Though it's a meaningless life. We're trying to make the best of it. And you can have a little temporary pleasure, but in the end, it's still meaningless. Having cut anchor from God's truth, there's no meaning to be found anywhere. This leads to hopelessness and despair, just like Solomon found in Ecclesiastes. When he tried to live like this for a season, Ecclesiastes 1-2. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In the culture, this view is going to lead to eventual disillusionment, followed by despair and depression. And in the church, it will likewise lead to eventual disillusionment. But it's followed by the shipwreck of one's faith. And we, we've now watched one full generation live through this era. And the, the seabed of subjectivity is just scattered with countless who have made complete shipwreck of their faith, have abandoned the faith. All right, that's enough. Well, where are we going with all this? Like I said at the beginning, we live in an age where the truth has fallen on hard times. And it, it ha has had a disastrous effect for culture and for the church. But what effect has it had on, on your life? This is the world we live in. This is the worldview that gets piped into your TVs. That gets force-fed in the schools. 
that gets broadcasted sometimes even in our churches. So what are we to do? How do we navigate living life in a postmodern world so that we don't make shipwreck of our faith? And that's something I want to help you with this morning. So yes, that was all introduction. (laughs) But it was perhaps needed to open your eyes to the bigger moment of time we're in and the challenges it presents. Because this is not the 1600s anymore. You can't take truth for granted. In fact, to be a people committed to truth, absolute truth from above, now means being completely countercultural. That was easy in the 1600s. Now it's, it's going to be hard. But that's what we must do. And that's what the church must be. Because there's only one foundation, one anchor to keep us from being lost at sea, and that is God and his word. So I hope this long introduction has just stirred up your thoughts, got you thinking about our culture's worldview and its implications in the world and in the church. But now I want to equip you with how to respond. Using God's word as our compass. With all this in mind, I want to give you five affirmations to help you navigate life in a postmodern world. From the scriptures, five affirmations to help you navigate life in a postmodern world that you might not make shipwreck of your own faith. So first, affirm God as the source of truth. Affirm God as the source of truth. Postmoderns may try to deny absolute truth and morality. It's a really disingenuous worldview because nobody lives as if there's, there's no actual truth and morality. It's just that man in his rebellion against God wants to now be in control of the definitions. I want to define truth and morality. But God has made his existence and nature known to us. Romans 1.19. That which is known about God is evident to all. What has man done with this knowledge? Romans 1.18. He suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1.25. Man has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Postmodernism is just the latest expression of man's age-old rebellion against God, which is all about dethroning God and taking his place one way or another. But scripture affirms what our hearts testify, that if there is a God in heaven, he did create all things, he has all power and all knowledge, and he is therefore the standard of truth. God is true metaphysically, meaning he's not like other false gods built on lies. He, he is what God should be. And so Christ himself in John 17, 3 confessed that God is the only true God. The only true God. Remember, by the way, how I told you about Harvard, where at first they put Jesus as the foundation of their learning. That was the verse they quoted for that. John 17, 3. You only get to veritas truth through the one true God. God is also true ethically. That the revelation of him is true and perfectly reliable. Hebrews 6.18, it's impossible for God to lie. And so Romans 3.4, let God be found true, though every man a liar. God himself, being the omniscient creator, is the sole source and standard of truth. There's no truth apart from him by definition. Postmoderns want to divorce God's love and God's truth. They want to keep the God of love, but not so much the God of truth. But it doesn't work that way. In the scriptures, God's love and God's truth are always married. 
How did God reveal himself to Moses shortly after what we read this morning in Exodus 32? Later in Exodus 34, 6, God declares himself, his nature to Moses. And he testifies that he is abounding in loving kindness and truth. He's full of both. And later David rightly confesses Psalm 25, verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. God himself is true north. He's the north pole on the compass that allows it to work. And without a northern magnetic pole, a compass would be a worthless instrument. You just keep spinning around, it wouldn't get you anywhere. You'd just be forever lost. But God is the source of all things true, and and only through him does the fog lift. This is likewise true for God the Spirit. Recall in the upper room, Jesus was telling his disciples that the Spirit would soon come upon them. But what does he call this Holy Spirit? John 14, 17, he calls him the spirit of truth. And when the Holy Spirit comes, what's he going to do? He says in John 16, 13, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And likewise, God, the son is known by truth. John 1, 1 and 14, in the beginning was the word, speaking of Christ, the word was with God, the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the, uh, from the father, full of grace and truth. And it says in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No, for certain, Jesus was no postmodernist. He believed God was the sole source of truth. And he came as really that truth incarnate. And you too must first affirm that the triune God as the source of truth first. Secondly, now affirm scripture as the revelation of truth. Affirm scripture as the revelation of truth. Look, because truth is inherent to the very being of God and because it's impossible for God to lie, whenever he speaks, he speaks what is true. And therefore his revelation will be just as truthful as God himself. And this is certainly the case when it comes to his special written revelation, the scriptures. The full truthfulness of God is reflected in his word. This is why Jesus again himself confessed John 17, 17 and praying to God. He says, your word is truth. Doesn't get much more simple. Your word is truth. Whatever is said about the truthfulness of God can be said about his word. Job affirmed that God is perfect in knowledge. Job 37, 16. King David confessed that, that God's words are truth. 2 Samuel seven twenty eight. And then you read Psalm 119, it's, it's just up and down. Verse 142, your law is truth. Verse 151, your commandments are truth. Verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Everything God says is true and is true forever. It's fair to ask, you know, how, can, how can a 2,000-year-old book really tell us how to live in the modern era? We've been to the moon. We're really going to still listen to this book for how we are to live today. Especially since it was written by just like fishermen, shepherds, a tax collector, 
Who gave these men the right, the authority to speak truth into our lives? Well, the answer is God and his spirit. And Jesus promised the spirit of truth would enter them and lead them into all the truth. And the written word, the Bible, is the product of that. That's what Peter says, 2 Peter 1.20. He says, no, first of all, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And such the Bible is not the product of man's hands alone, but also God's breath, which is why it's inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible, and it's clear. It's clear. Again, postmoderns, they might not, at least in the church, they may not deny outright the existence of truth in the Bible, but they deny what's called the perspicuity of Scripture, meaning the clarity of Scripture. It's not clear. The truth of the Bible, it's, it's in there somewhere, but we can't really arrive at it with any certainty. But you realize what, what a damning view of Scripture that is. I mean, what, what's the point of reading it if we can't understand it? And what's the point of God giving it to us if he knew we wouldn't be able to, to discern it? And isn't that really just a big slander on the author? We've all read a book or a textbook that just wasn't good. It wasn't clear. It didn't make sense. And it, it really, it's a reflection on the author. It just couldn't cut it. And so what are postmoderns saying? That the God of the universe is just a lousy communicator? No, to the contrary, God is not a God of confusion, but order. Not ignorance, but knowledge. Not obscurity, but clarity. And the same goes for his word. Psalm 19 verse 7 says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Even the simple, the simple-minded can find God's truth clearly in his word. Now, to be sure, we know this. We know 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. We know that. But especially among those who know the Lord, we're talking in the church now that the word should be crystal clear. And this is why we're called to preach the word, right? When the church assembles, this is why the Lord himself commands us and his apostles command us to be preaching the word. Second Timothy 4, 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And the word is so clear. It's given as our sole source of teaching, preaching, instruction. The church's life bread is, is this word. And it has to be preached delivered to the hearts and minds of God's people continually that we might be free from error. For, the next verse says, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, it warns us, it says, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from what? From the truth and will turn aside toward myths. And what the world needs and what the church needs is not more myths or more speculation or more dialogue, but they need God's more sure word. You need truth and it is to be found in scripture above all. Thirdly, now affirm experience as inferior to truth. Affirm experience as inferior to truth. 
Now look, experience is not the enemy. And look, your faith in God should never be devoid of experience. If your affections are never moved for God, there's something seriously wrong with your faith. Faith should lead to an experience, uh, a, a, a genuine experience of love for God and his people. But the point we're making is that we must not elevate personal experience or emotion to the level of scripture as a source of truth. If you're going to listen to your experiences and your emotions to find out what's true and false in life, you're going to have a hard, error-prone life. I mean, you, you should know your emotions can most definitely be wrong. And I hope you know your experiences can definitely lead you astray. And so you should never use them as the grid to interpret the Bible, but vice versa. Your scriptures will tell you how to interpret your feelings and experiences. You see this reflected in 2 Peter 1. Peter was relating his own personal experience. And he was talking about witnessing the transfiguration from the gospels. That, that has to be the highest spiritual experience anyone has ever had on this side of heaven. He, get, he got to see Christ transfigured into his kingdom glory. He saw this with his own eyes. He heard God with his own ears. He relates this mountain experience in 2 Peter 1. But shockingly, Peter himself subjects this experience to God's word. Now, this was a true experience. But Peter knew that all experiences are still secondary to what? God's, he says, more sure word. More sure than that is the word. So listen to what he says. This is by way of contrast to his experience. He says in 2 Peter 1.19, But we have the more sure prophetic word, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. You give Peter that experience or the Old Testament prophetic word, he's going to take the Old Testament prophetic word. It's more sure. We don't need experiences. We have something better, something complete, something that can never be wrong, never lead us astray in God's word. It's sufficient for all life and godliness. And so we don't need anything else. And that's why to Peter, the word was more sure than his own experience. Experiences can be true. His was genuine, but they can be false. Your feelings can betray you. You can't trust in them to guide you. That's the point. What can you trust? What will never lead you astray, it's God's more sure word. So we must affirm experience as inferior to truth. This leads us to number four, affirm worship as dependent on truth. Affirm worship as dependent on truth. Look, you can count on scripture for guidance in all things. That includes how we ought to worship God. Shouldn't we let God himself tell us and define true worship what it means, what it looks like to worship him. You're not going to get close to true worship if you base it on your feelings. And we need the truth of his word to guide us, to instruct us. And again, this is where postmoderns in the church go so wrong. They've created a false view of worship. By abandoning God's word as truth, they think it's actually going to take them closer to authentic worship. And that is another buzzword, by the way, you'll always hear, authentic. They're just seeking authentic worship. But they've made a false dichotomy that either you have absolute truth or you have authentic worship. 
It's not an either or. It is true that Christians, many in the past and present, have been so devoted to the truth that their love and their worship have grown cold. That's true. And it's understandable that the whole postmodern movement in the church is reacting against cold, dead orthodoxy. We should react against that. We should reject cold, dead orthodoxy, devoid of passion and feeling for the Lord. But the solution to that problem is not to throw the truth overboard. How did Jesus himself lead us to worship God? John 4, again, a familiar passage. Jesus encounters a woman at a well, and she had two problems with Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, herself being a Samaritan. At first, she had a a different view on the right location of worship. And second, she had a different view on the right content, the right source of worship. To her being a Samaritan, the right location of worship was Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem. And to her being a Samaritan, the right content, the right source of worship was the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, and nothing else. The Samaritans rejected the rest of the Old Testament. So that was her problem with, with Jesus as a Jewish Messiah. How did Jesus respond to her when she tells him this? Did he say like, well, you know what? The Old Testament's a really big book and it's, it's hard to understand. It's just unclear. And so I don't have all the details figured out, but just love God. All you have to do to worship, just love God with your earnest heart. That's all that matters. The truth is a little bit fuzzy. That's not what he said. He gave her a response of just pure, absolute truth, even telling her, you're wrong. John 4, 22, he says to her, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. You notice how Jesus affirms the right content of worship. He unequivocally states that the Samaritans are wrong. They have it wrong. They're in the wrong and therefore their worship is wrong. Salvation is from the Jews, meaning they have the full revelation of God. And so if you want to truly worship God, it has to be done in spirit. That's referring to the right place of worship. It's not Gerizim or Jerusalem anymore. It's, it's in the spirit. It's in your heart. God wants to be worshiped from your heart. You must worship in spirit. But he doesn't say spirit alone. Spirit and truth. Worship must also be done in truth. That is according to what is true. According to the fullness of his revelation. To worship God in falsehood is false worship. God is a God of truth. It's just part of his essential nature. So do you want to commune with this God? You should. Do you want to know this God? I hope you do. But you're not going to find him outside of his truth. He's the only one that gets to say, this is my truth. But that just means it's true now for all of us. He defines truth and you're not going to find him elsewhere. You don't find God by emptying your mind and staring at a wall. You find God by filling your mind with his word. That is how you know him. And that is the way to real authentic worship. Lastly here, number five, affirm meaning as exclusive to truth. Affirm meaning as exclusive to truth. And just takes us back to Ecclesiastes 1-2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Preacher, 
is writing from the perspective of considering all life apart from God. What happens when you try and live and you ignore the creator? When you detach your life from his revealed will? When you go your own way, what do you find? Yeah, you'll find some momentary pleasure, but it will be fleeting. And thereafter, you're just going to find emptiness. This is a fallen and cursed world. And there's no lasting meaning found here below. So what's the conclusion when you live life apart from God and his truth? Listen to Ecclesiastes 2.11, where he arrives at his conclusion after experimenting with life under the sun without God. Ecclesiastes 2.11, thus I considered all my activities, which my hands had done and the labor, which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. There was no profit under the sun. It says in verse 17, so I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after the wind. He even says later, it, it would have been better to have never been born than to live life in this fallen, meaningless, futile world. Despair, dejection, depression. And that's all that awaits those who pursue meaning apart from God. Is it any wonder that in this postmodern era, post-war, what do you expect? That depression rates are through the roof compared to the modern or pre-modern era. It's out of control. And is it also any surprise that in postmodern nihilistic or atheistic societies that suicide rates are also through the roof? Let's consider Japan. Suicide is the leading cause of death of men under 44. The leading cause of death. When life is no longer working out, you might as well just go out. That, that's all that awaits those who are adrift in the sea of subjectivity. But it doesn't have to be this way because life does have meaning and purpose here below. Fulfillment, what your heart is actually longing for, it can be found. But only in the creator, in God. And this is the ultimate conclusion the preacher found in Ecclesiastes as he returned his heart to the Lord. He, he says, the last two verses, Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen. he says, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God, keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. As he says in verse 7 of chapter 12, the reality is one day your body is going to go back to dust. Your spirit will return to the God who gave it, and then you'll be judged. And if you are one who has persisted in suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness, and well, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed against such. You'll only find his wrath. Then you'll know eternal despair. But the good news is that because this is a God of love in addition to truth. That by his mercy, he's made a way for us to be forgiven, reconciled, and rescued. He sent his son, the word incarnate, to die on the cross, to pay for our sins. He paid the debt against God that we owed in our own foolish rebellion. And now having risen from the dead... He offers you new and eternal life, meaning, purpose found in him. But to receive it, you have to end your rebellion. You have to affirm God as truth. You have to repent of your ways. And you have to confess his son as 
the way, the truth, and the life. In John 14, 6. When you do so, however, you'll find life to the fullest. Life eternal. That's eternal in quantity. It's also eternal in quality. Like Jesus said in John 17, 3, that verse again. Christ said, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You find eternal life in knowing God through Christ by faith. Like the preacher in Ecclesiastes, those who subscribe to postmodern thinking will one day end up at the point of disillusionment. One day or another. I mean, their worldview has its own extinction built into it. It's so futile. And the same goes for Christians who've been caught up in it. One day they'll become disillusioned. One day they will, as it's said now, deconstruct their faith. And when that day happens, when that day comes, who will be there to greet them? What alternate worldview will be there to show them this is actually the way, the truth, and the life? Our calling, both in our worship and our witness, is to be unashamed of this God and his truth. I mean, for our own sake and for the sake of a watching world, we are to be a people who faithfully cling to the rock of God and his truth from above. Our thinking and our way of life and our message, it may be foolish to the world. We know that, you know, so be it. First Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us, to those who are being saved, we know it is the power of God. And that's why even in this culture, in this age, the world still needs the message of the cross. Because that's simply where God has put his power to change people. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Colossians 1.5, he says the gospel is the word of truth. Ephesians 1.13, the gospel is the message of truth. And that's what the world needs. They need to hear the truth. We must be those unashamed of God and his testimony found in the scriptures. We must speak the truth in love with heaps of love. We must speak the truth. This is how we will not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. Romans 12 two, And this is how the world will be transformed as well. I want to finish by telling you the end of that Harvard story. Now Harvard college founded by Puritans to raise ministers for the church. Probably not a surprise to you. That's not Harvard today. That's not what they're like today. I'm sure it doesn't come as a surprise. Harvard today is, is totally godless. Actually, they're ecumenical. They accept and affirm all gods of any shape and form. Harvard really is now a postmodern beacon of uncertainty. One thing is certain, though, they've lost veritas. They've lost the truth. And as you look back on their history, when did it happen? When did they, they turn that final corner and, and lose the truth? It happened when they changed their motto. Now, you might be wondering if you know colleges that their motto is still Veritas, isn't it? It is. Their motto is still Veritas, truth. But that actually wasn't their original motto. I didn't tell you the full story because actually their original motto was Veritas Christo et Ecclesia. The original motto was truth for Christ and the church. You can see the change when they dropped all the other stuff. 
You can see where they went wrong. It happened when they abandoned truth as found and founded on Christ. But may this never be us. May we not abandon the truth for money or success or acceptance or fitting in or avoiding persecution or popularity or, or whatever. May we never abandon Christ. But may we seek to know him, find him in his word, to worship him. And may we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let us preach Christ. Our father in heaven, that's our call and our commission this morning and, and every day to be a people found by the truth. Now committed to the truth, your truth, which is the only truth. Call to live it out and represent it to a world. You have designed your church to be a, a type of city on a hill. We are to be those whom the world sees and, and a testimony that there is a God in heaven. He has made this world. He has revealed to us the only way, truth, and life back to him. And it's found through his son, Christ. I pray you convict us this morning. Uh, surely error, surely Uncertainty has filled our lives. It's part of our culture we live in like a sponge. Our own lives can be saturated with this. But open our eyes. Help, help us not to be a people so easily deceived. May we be discerning, for we do not want to be led astray. We don't want to drift from the rock. But let us be anchored closely to him, the God of our salvation, the God of all truth. Help us to hunger and thirst for truth and for righteousness and to seek you. Uh, surely the world needs it, but our own lives need it. In this certainty, though, there, there's meaning, there's hope that you've already sent this Savior, as we think about near Christmas, to, to come to earth, yet die on the cross, to rise from the dead, and to give us fulfillment that you made us for, to reconcile us to our God, and we'll know him and enjoy him, experience him fully throughout eternity, but only now through Christ. He really is the way and the truth and the life. I pray any here who do not know him, that they would go to the Father through him, they would be confronted with their own sin and the futility of their own lives, the meaningless, meaninglessness of it all. But look up and see hope is found above. Truth comes from above. Salvation comes from above. They can go there as well if they would go to him. So convict their hearts. And for us, may we cling to the truth. Help us to be devoted ever more to the truth of your word. The Bible is not just something we read to check off some boxes or feel religious. This is a treasure we have, gold refined gold. Your truth has been revealed. How can we not search for it, seek it, study it, know it? We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God found in the Bible. So may we hold it dear to seek you, to know you, to worship you in spirit and in truth. May that be true for us as your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.